Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey everyone, welcome back. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. How do we navigate all the buzzwords, acronyms, and definitions of dual language learners and programs? What are the benefits to these programs for English language learners, dual language learners, and native English speakers? What are the challenges schools and communities are facing in implementing them, and how can we begin solving these problems? We tackle these questions and more as we kick off our series on dual language programs with Dr. Connor P. Williams. Connor is a senior researcher in New America's Education Policy Program, where he founded the organization's Dual Language Learners National Workgroup in 2014. His work addresses policies and practices related to educational equity, dual language learners, immigration, and school choice. His writing has appeared in The Washington Post, The Atlantic, U.S. News & World Report, among many others. Before joining New America, Connor taught first grade in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. Let's get started. Okay, welcome, Connor. Could you tell us a little bit about your professional trajectory and how you began doing this work? Sure. So uh, I'm a public school kid. I taught first grade in um, in Crown Heights in Brooklyn through Teach for America. I uh, I got a PhD in government at Georgetown, and I, I sort of began this freelance journalism habit of mine. And then when I finished my PhD, I, I ended up at, uh, at New America. It's a think tank in DC. I uh, you know, I came into languages for a number of reasons. I, like many you know, white English-dominant Americans, uh, my path to learning languages started in middle school. I started taking Spanish, and I just kind of kept at it because it felt like, you know, after I'd taken a couple of classes, like I didn't want to stop. I kind of committed to the project, so I took it all through high school. Same thing in college. I didn't really intend to to major in Spanish, but I just kept going, and um. And then next thing I knew, I had this, this Spanish major on the side of my political science major. Point being, um, became bilingual through like a 10-year, 12-year course of just always taking Spanish and studying abroad in college. So then when I started working in education policy, uh, thinking about the ways that language and multilingualism are engaged in broader educational in- inequities was just a natural fit. That's great. We definitely have something in common there as I um, also learned Spanish through that trajectory. And I would say it was a 10 to 12 year period. And I found myself majoring in Spanish, much like you did, just because why not? I'm kind of invested. Uh, this is a wonderful skill to learn. And so I'm going to continue with it. And I look at it as one of the best decisions I made um, in in my higher education pursuits. So you mentioned um, New America. That's where you are now. You gave us a little bit of a high level telling us that it's a think tank. What exactly are you working on there? My day-to-day work at New America is a couple of different tracks. So it's one part keeping tabs on the daily just shoving of education politics. Uh, one part, thinking about existing education policies and how to improve them in the long term. Uh, and then like one part, just like getting into fights on the internet and, and tweeting entirely too much. Uh, but you know, long story short, we do uh, education policy research in a way that that's supposed to be um, more formal than your average media outlet. But 
uh, more accessible than your average academic. So we try to kind of sit in this nexus point between practitioners and teachers on one hand, researchers, formal researchers on the other, and then on a third hand, I suppose, uh, policymakers and the general public. Great. And I think that's much needed um, as a, as a you know, longtime public school teacher. I taught Spanish for 17 years, and then I found myself um, at the Harvard Graduate School of Education among a lot of academics and researchers. And really bridging the gap between those two or three worlds that you mentioned, I think, is really important. And I've certainly found the resources that I've seen on New America accessible to both of those worlds. So love to talk with you about uh, your work with dual language learners. But first, I think it is worth sort of taking a moment to norm around language. There are a lot of buzzwords and acronyms in this area. So what do you mean when you say dual language learner or dual language program? Is it the same as bilingual learner and a bilingual program, or are there differences there? Oh, God. I mean, the terms are the worst. They're just the worst for, for trying to work in this space. Um, I, sometimes I wonder if we put as much energy as a field, as a corner of the field of education policy, those of us who care about multilingualism, if we put as much energy into shoving and pushing for the policies we care about as we do into kind of adjudicating between terms, I think we'd get a lot more done. But so here's, here's what I'd say. My team uh, in New America, we've historically used the term dual language learners or DLLs to refer to young students who are, they're starting the process of learning English, uh, usually at school while they still are developing basic proficiency in their home languages. So these are usually kids in their first eight years uh, of life. Um, They're not dual language learners because they're in a dual immersion program necessarily. They're dual language learners because at four or five years old, they're still becoming native, fully proficient Spanish speakers or Mandarin speakers, and they're learning English, even if they're just in an English immersion ESL program. So within the field, we're trying to encourage people also above eight years old students. We're talking about um, older English learners. We call those English language learners or or English learners. When we talk about the actual instructional programs, usually we use the term dual immersion programs in part to try to distinguish from dual language learners. Uh, Instead of calling the programs dual language programs, we call them dual immersion programs just to keep a little bit of daylight there because we think kids can be dual language learners even if they're not in those programs. But a dual immersion program is usually an instructional model that teaches academic content in two languages, uh, usually in English and a non-English language. Uh, In the United States, the the bulk of the time that non-English language is Spanish, but there are other programs. In Portland uh, Public Schools, they have Russian immersion programs, Vietnamese, Japanese, Mandarin. Uh, All over the country, there are are a wide range of languages um, being offered. I've heard of Korean immersion programs. Portland is exploring uh, opening uh, an immersion program in a Somali language. The best of these programs usually are evenly enrolled in terms of uh, native speakers of each language, too. And so that's that's what one critical distinction where you have a two way dual immersion program means that the instruction is happening in two languages and you have native speakers of both languages of instruction there in the class. So. My kids are in a two-way dual immersion program where there's about the same number of English native speakers and Spanish native speakers uh, in classrooms where instruction's in both English and Spanish. It is possible, though, to have a one-way dual immersion program where instruction happens in both languages, but you've only got students who are native speakers from one language group, usually uh, a class full of English speakers who are learning Spanish and English at the same time. Sure. So a lot to dissect there, and I think we're going to get into some of that a little bit later as we talk about the challenges of 
making these programs sort of equal access between different groups of people speaking different languages. One of the things you brought up that I think is interesting at the beginning was that um, although we tend to think of our academics, or I guess the layperson tends to think of these titles like dual language as being academic and school-based terms, a lot of them just have to do with how someone is growing up in the early years and what languages they're speaking at home. For sure. Uh, My kids are if we wanted to be super duper accurate and technical about this, my kids are dual language learners, right? They're learning Spanish at school. They're both under the age of eight. They're still very much developing as English speakers. Um, and actually a weird wrinkle of it all. I married a lady who's a native Welsh speaker. Uh, but yet you heard that right. Like Welsh speaker, there's only you know a million or so in the whole world. And so they, they are trilingual learners kind of, uh, but yeah, it's, it's it's one of those things where our our terms sort of fail us, and there's also so much around immigration politics and linguistic politics and broader questions of who counts as American that can make this a really fraught space to talk about. Sure. Well, that's a great overview, and I think that helps us kind of understand uh, the differences between school and home and sort of norm a little bit on the terms. And now that we've done that, I want to dive into the history a little bit, which I'm sure is just as complex So over the last few decades, there have been a lot of significant shifts in policy and practice when it comes to language learning. I think we're now at a point where language programs seem to have reestablished themselves as as exemplary, dual language programs have. For the sake of framing the rest of the conversation, could you take us through a brief history of dual language programs in the U.S. and sort of what's happened over the past two decades? I realize that's a long question, but is there a way to kind of frame that in a in a summarized way? Uh, what I'd say is this. The short version is that um, we have a, a a very long history of bilingual education programs in the United States. Uh, through the, the 19th century and into the 20th century, there were um, a range of, of bilingual education programs set up, in part because this notion of a broad public entitlement to um, public education wasn't there yet. And so in the absence of any kind of universal comprehensive public education, it was a lot easier for local communities of immigrants to decide, well, we're going to sort of start our own schools to work with our kids. And within that, we'll teach both some English, but also the languages that, that, that we speak at home. So in the North Midwest, there were, um, there were a host, especially in Minnesota, and I believe in Wisconsin, a host of German English uh, bilingual schools across the country in different cities. There were uh, schools teaching in Italian, in Polish, in a variety of other languages. As the expansion of public education became, as education became a real publicly provided good across uh, communities in the United States, that meant that the broader public got more involved in what was taught in there. And so that, that led towards more and more English being taught. Um, also just global politics did this. A lot of the German English bilingual programs collapsed under the pressures of wars with Germany. Um, German, uh, German origin immigrants in the United States were eager to, to not be seen as un-American and, and committing to English was one way they could, they could demonstrate that. So that's the longer wave history. Um, those were usually programs sort of run by and for immigrant uh, communities, Over the years, especially as we got into the later 20th century, um, under various iterations of the the, the core elementary and secondary education act, it's now, used to be No Child Left Behind, and now it's the Every Student Succeed Act. Uh, Over the years, bilingual education has had different roles in there. The the federal government supported and promoted it at at various times and has sort of pulled back on it recently. 
But uh, the, the really important historical point here is that in into the 80s and 90s, there was a fair amount of bilingual education happening in Spanish. Um, it was usually targeted to native Spanish-speaking students, children of immigrants or immigrants themselves, and often in traditional gateway, gateway states like um, Arizona, like California, New Mexico, Texas. Um, over the years, the politics of immigration started to impinge on that, and California and Arizona famously declared themselves English only for English language learners um, in the 90s, the late 90s. Massachusetts did as well. Um, and so there were the, this argument was made that kids who were Spanish speakers, native Spanish speakers in these classes were never becoming proficient in English. They were learning Spanish, they were getting bilingual instruction with not enough English, and so they needed to be an English-only immersion. Um, and that lasted as a pretty stable consensus in those states through until pretty recently. California only just pulled back its English-only mandate a couple of years ago in the 2016 election. Arizona's still in place. The idea with dual immersion programs is supposed to fix this, where instead of it being a two-language program, a bilingual program just for native Spanish speakers, they're supposed to integrate where you've got English speakers in there who are immersed in Spanish and Spanish speakers in there who are immersed in English. And of course, the same would work for Mandarin or Vietnamese, et cetera. And that way you're integrating the program in terms of kids learning lots of each language. Uh, but you're also making sure that it isn't the sort of ghettoized, segregated program off to the side. Uh, and so it, it's supposed to really work, and it, it does really work in the research that we have, partly because of that, where in a two-way immersion program, there's tons of Spanish just kicking around the room because there are a bunch of native Spanish speakers in there. Uh, in a one-way dual immersion program, there's usually one or two teachers who speak Spanish and then a whole classroom of native English speakers. And lo and behold, they don't pick up Spanish as well. So you talked about this a little bit, but I'd really like to get into what you see as some of the main benefits of dual language programs in today's schools. And I'll just kind of stipulate, because I want to get into later some of the challenges, but I want to really talk about dual language programs done well. What are the main benefits to those? Well, so look, the, the first, I think, and most exciting thing is, is what I said just a minute ago, is that when you have a two-way dual immersion program, you have so much of both languages in the classroom that everybody's benefiting. That means that these native Spanish speakers are providing the use of Spanish in a social context. And again, I, this is personal for me. My kids are in a program. I dropped them off a couple hours ago. Right now, uh, a bunch of their friends are native Spanish speakers. And the only way to build those relationships has been to learn Spanish. So it's, it's like studying abroad, but in your classroom here in the States, um, which is just another way of saying that the best part about dual immersion programs is that they actually require integration to work best. Think about that. What other pedagogy needs integration to work? There are lots of, uh, of schools that we know will be better if they're integrated by race, by ethnicity, by language, by, by class. But dual immersion literally requires it to work. If you, you, you don't have it, then it doesn't work as well. Uh, and so number two is that it supports, in the research, it's the, the best way to support um, dual language learners and English language learners, linguistic and academic development. Kids who are learning English in US schools generally do best when they're in dual immersion programs, especially two-way dual immersion programs. And then three, uh, it, if you care about making the United States more, more um, competitive in the global economy, more culturally diverse, more open and tolerant, um, it, it makes the United States more multilingual. Um, more kids speaking more languages is better for our, our workforce in the long run. Uh, it's better for understanding ourselves in a more diverse and plural United States. And I guess the fourth thing, the final thing I'd say is that just families love dual immersion programs. 
if you're a dual or if you're a public school and you're worried about your enrollment, you're you're trying to find a way to keep families in the public schools. Dual immersion programs are wildly popular almost everywhere they open. Yeah, so certainly a lot of takeaways there and thanks for for listing those for What's interesting to me is, you know, this whole idea of global competency becoming um, a graduation requirement for many high schools that maybe don't have dual language programs. So the idea of being a global citizen, what does that mean? You talked about uh, study abroad, which is the way that I learned Spanish and certainly the way that I learned to appreciate cultures. Being able to do that uh, in your own school, perhaps particularly if you don't have the means to go and travel to another another country to study – um, and then I think like you didn't necessarily mention this and certainly stop me if I'm wrong here, but, you know, I'm th- thinking about what you mentioned with your children that are learning or, to forge relationships with students from other cultures. And the only way they can do that is through language. I have to think that that has some implications on social emotional learning as well. One way to think about this is it's giving kids an advantage. They're becoming more tolerant and socially competent and they can work across difference. And that's sort of like this sort of secret, not so secret professional advantage they'll have. Um, in expanding their privilege, my, you know, my relatively privileged children as they grow up. But I think it's also just the right thing to do. We want more people in the world, in the United States, to be comfortable uh, around diverse communities. We have a relatively stable demographic research suggesting that the United States, our, our young children cohort, the, the number of people we have under the age of eight, um, hasn't really increased since about 1990 if you only look at native-born American um, parents. So native-born Americans are only barely replacing themselves. All of our growth in our young children space, we have more you know, zero to eight-year-olds now than we used to in, the, in 1990, is from children of immigrants. And that's to say that our schools are getting more diverse, which means that lo and behold, unsurprisingly, our workforce is going to be more diverse. Our marketplace will be more diverse. Our society, our neighborhoods, our cities, our towns, they're all going to be more diverse. And so being comfortable with that, being ready for that, is both the right thing to do and also it's an advantage for kids. And I'll just say that, you know, by by summing it up the way that you did, by saying it's the right thing to do and then backing that up with research, what you've done is what we've talked about before, which is bridging the gap between research, policy, and practice. So thanks for that. I think that's really important. Yeah. All right. So it sounds great. Uh, I mentioned to you that I really wanted to talk about dual language programs that are run well, which I think we just did a good job of doing. But in the article that you wrote for The Atlantic, which um, I will put down in the in the notes of the podcast and we'll reference it later, a wonderful article that I highly recommend people read, you wrote, there are some indications that multilingual schools' increasing appeal is inadvertently undermining the original purpose for the model. Could you elaborate on that point? What are what are some of the challenges that dual language programs are are currently facing? that are just endemic to the, to the programs. Like they're hard to staff. We don't have that many teachers in the United States who are native speakers of non-English languages. They are hard to find resources for curricula and other languages difficult. Um, they're hard to implement because they sound really good and they are really popular, but knowing how to build one is not an obvious thing. There's like so many just core challenges of doing it well in the first place. But the article I wrote for the Atlantic is, is, was trying to explore something that I've been watching happen in DC over the last decade that I've lived here for the decade that I've lived here is that, like I said, they're super popular with families, uh, in, in Washington, DC and the stats in the article, uh, in some of the different dual immersion programs in the city, 
there'll be 10, maybe 20 seats open in, in their pre-K at the beginning uh, of each school year. And they'll have well over six or 700, even over a thousand people on the wait list uh, to get there, or a thousand kids on the wait list for those slots. And this is in a city with, a, we've got, a, I think, what, almost certainly a, uh, over a dozen, maybe two dozen uh, dual immersion programs. So here's what I mean when I say that their appeal is undermining the original purpose. These programs are so popular with families that when the privileged are able to, and privileged usually means English dominant, it tends to mean wealthy, and it tends to mean white in D.C. and in many cities. When they can, they'll game whatever enrollment system they can to get their kids into these programs. Now, that's nothing new, and that happens in every high-quality, popular school model, right? Montessori programs have something like this. Um, I'm sure you know STEM high schools face this kind of problem, the, the privilege of trying to kind of secure them only for themselves. But remember what I said earlier, dual immersion programs work best and really require integration. That's when they work best. And so the problem we have is if you're a neighborhood school and you're a dual language or a dual immersion school, over, the, over time, if it becomes popular, folks are going to start moving into the neighborhood to get access. And the folks who can afford to purchase homes to, to move their entire uh, life to, to sort of pick a place in the real estate market simply for school access are not going to be the people who are at the bottom of the economic spectrum. They're going to be the wealthy. So what we're starting to see in D.C. is that essentially wealthy, white, English-dominant families are buying out um, these dual immersion programs so that they're no longer accessible to other families. Now, you have to be careful not to conflate too many things here. You know, There's no reason that language ought to correlate to wealth or to race in, in all communities in all cases. But what we do know is that the child poverty rate for families that, that speak a non-English language at home is higher. It's about 10 points higher. Uh, than for English-dominant, English-only families. So that means that non-English language learners, families who speak English at home, tend to be wealthier, and they tend to be able to buy houses or to, to buy their way through enrollment systems to get in. So that's the challenge right now, is that if your model requires 50% native Spanish speakers and 50% native English speakers, and the English speakers start buying up all the houses in your neighborhood, it gets harder and harder, and soon the next thing you know, and we see this in a couple of neighborhood schools in D.C., some of these dual immersion programs are now down to 10 or 15 or 20% ELLs. They're becoming overwhelmingly English-speaking English programs. And then lo and behold, one, they're not serving those DLLs or those, those English learners anymore, at least not at the same numbers. And two, they're just not going to work as well. Those English-speaking families are inadvertently pushing out the native Spanish speakers that they, they need if the program is going to work. So it sounds like even if in a world in which we had enough dual language schools and programs, enough teachers to staff them, we might still have an issue with sort of making sure that we have the right mix of students, so to speak, um, in those programs. Sure. So right now it is very much a zero-sum game because we don't we have this relatively severe shortage, and it, it varies by community and by state and et cetera. But in many, many places, we just don't have enough teachers who can actually instruct in a non-English language. And so that means that every time we open one of these programs and we either gear it towards or we allow it to be taken over by English-dominant students, then we're, we're almost implicitly and oftentimes explicitly taking those languages away from kids who speak them at home. That's always going to be a problem. Um, but yeah, in a, in, in a kinder, safer, better, fairer world, we'd have enough multilingual teachers and we'd be able to offer these programs. But I think, as you say, we would still need to start guarding against it. There's, there's a long, against this, this opportunity hoarding. 
there's a long history in the United States of the privileged trying to find various not too public, not too embarrassing ways of segregating themselves off with other families like theirs so that their students go to school with only kids who are also privileged. And I think that barring some intentional work, that's where we'll end up uh, around dual immersion programs too. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it might be worth noting, I don't know if you have any reaction to this, you know, but there are almost 9,000 teachers right now affected by DACA who are bilingual and may be teachers who are qualified to to work in these kinds of programs. I mean, I've read a lot of articles recently about that. Oh, it's lunacy. It's lunacy what we're doing uh, around our, our so-called documented teachers, right? That these are our kids, these are not kids, these are young adults now. These are adults, in fact, with uh, a significant amount of education who have language skills and professional skills that we need in this country. And we have the, I was going to say have the gall, but that doesn't even capture it. We have the short-sightedness not to be taking advantage of that. We Forget um, just the politics of DACA right now. Consider that across the country right now, there are, there are companies set up whose job, their entire reason of existence is to facilitate the so-called J-1 visa process, meaning to bring in visiting teachers who speak non-English languages from overseas to come and teach in dual immersion programs. There are companies making money off of this because it's, there's so much demand for native speakers of non-English languages in U.S. schools. And you're telling me that we have the, some interest nationally in dismissing people who are already here, who want to be here, who want to teach, and who, if we gave them legal status, could be here. We'd rather bring in immigrant uh, labor on these sort of weird uh, visa programs. They're, they're three-year cycling programs, the J-1. So people come in, best case scenario, they can be here for six if they get the visa renewed, and then they're gone. And so we want that kind of teacher rotation rather than having folks who are part of these communities. I think it's just ludicrous. Yeah, it's frustrating for sure. And I, I bring it up because you know I've had a lot of conversations recently just with friends. I, I have four children between the ages of, of five and 13. So we're fully immersed in elementary and middle school. And my friends are in similar situations. But most of my friends who are intelligent, I think, you know, well-educated people are very surprised when they hear statistics like that, that there are that many teachers in this country who ironically would serve the very programs that frankly, my friends and people that I know and respect would want their children in. Those are the teachers that we may lose or that are at least in peril or worried about what they're going to do next, which even if you don't lose your job, if you're completely worried about it and you're anxious about it, that certainly doesn't help your performance. Yeah. And we look, we have national conversations about increasing the diversity of our teaching force. We have national conversations and you know, you and I are part of it now about making multilingualism a reality for more kids in the United States. It, the documented teachers in this country are such a resource and it's astonishing that that isn't obvious. We just talked about a lot of challenges. There are many. Um, what do you see as some, some promising strategies to, to at least begin to solve some of these issues that we're having with numbers and the types of programs that are out there and sort of making sure that there's equity? The first and obvious and easiest thing to say would be like, look, you can just set up the expectation when you establish a program. We're going to have reserved seats for native speakers of each language, 50-50 English and, and Spanish dominant or English and Korean dominant or whatever language we're talking about. That's simple. It's, of course, complicated if it starts to run into by right neighborhood access to schools. Um, it's definitely complicated when it uh, runs into... Uh, whether or not um, 
that that could be challenged as as somehow being in violation of of quota rules around civil rights. It, it appears to be okay under civil rights, but a uh, civil rights law. But there's definitely, I think, an opening for people to try to challenge that. If you start saying we're going to sort by language, it's a little bit. I mean, it's sort of an untested ground, I think, in the long run. One other thing we can do is we can do open lotteries. You can, and this is in D.C. the 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 schools, the dual immersion programs that are gentrifying most rapidly are neighborhood schools, um, and those are within the district. Uh, the schools that are gentrifying somewhat less rapidly are the the charter schools because they're all open enrollment. Um, and that means that it's impossible. You can't buy your way in. Anyone in the district, anybody in D.C. can apply, um, and they have the same chance of getting in as, as anyone else, uh, regardless of where they can afford to live. The problem, of course, is that's not foolproof. That uh, the district is is also here in DC is also uh, gentrifying as a whole. It's not just the neighborhoods around these schools, and that means that we're we're going to eventually reach a point where no one who is a non-native speaker of English will be able to afford to live in DC, or very few will be able to afford to live. So you're going to see their numbers drop in in these programs partly because of that. Uh, you can do weighted lotteries too. This is permitted under federal law for charter schools and, and I think for, for district schools as well. They can say, look, we're going to just give some extra weight in the lottery to native speakers of, of non-English languages to try to keep our numbers up. Yeah, and I think we're dealing with some of the most entrenched issues in education. Um, in education, again, as a veteran educator, I saw it in the classroom, you know, things – there's a lot of talk about how we can change things. Actually getting those to change um, is extremely difficult. One thing with education is it seems that everybody's an expert because everybody's done it. One thing I'd say that maybe is like a brighter, <laughs> more cheerful uh, next step is that one thing that doesn't hurt or threaten anybody, especially the privileged, would be to make a serious push to recruit, train, and then keep multilingual adults in U.S. classrooms. We should probably be paying signing bonuses and higher salaries to anyone who's multilingual and is willing to teach in these programs. One, because that would ease some of our, our strain about trying to decide whether to open two-way immersion programs that, uh, that work so well, or one-way immersion programs that are still really appealing to a lot of English-dominant kids and families. That doesn't hurt anybody. We should just have more multilingual teachers. And it really wouldn't be that hard to start building that. Again, through DACA, for one, keeping all of those teachers. But two, um, setting up some alternative teacher pathways to allow for folks who are multilingual to get into the, the classroom and get into the workforce. My team has written about this at New America on a couple of different occasions. That's a really obvious step. And it, it, it's about making the pie bigger rather than meaning that we have to share it a different way. So let's talk, let's talk about the future. What, what do you see happening in the next five to 10 years in this space? You see change happening? Is this something that's going to be kind of continuing to fester while people argue and debate how we set this up? Or do you see real change? What I did find as I was reporting it out is there's definitely the seeds of it in a lot of places. It's already in place in DC. It's already happening in LA. It's already an issue in Portland, Oregon. You, you definitely hear about it happening in other cities, but it isn't as far along yet. So I think that's going to continue to be a story going forward. Um, other folks at the Heckinger Report and elsewhere have reported on that. It, it seems to be on its way. Um, and I think this is especially in urban areas where upwardly mobile millennial parents are showing up uh, and they're willing and interested in, in going to the public schools right where they live. Um, these dual immersion programs are super popular. I think the teacher shortage around bilingual teachers uh, is going to continue to be a major challenge for folks who are equity-minded on this. I, th I want to believe that that crunch will drive people 
you know, call them, uh, what are like the glittering buzzwords, call them the policy entrepreneurs or, or, you know, social entrepreneurs. Some people are going to try to do even more than's already happening to, to narrow the gap between supply and demand for multilingual teachers. That's going to happen. Um, I don't think it's going to happen fast enough, but, but that's coming. You, you've been doing this work um, for a long time now, and people who are listening to this podcast are people who are in this work. I'd love to hear if there's a book or a resource that you'd recommend to people to learn more about this, or even anything that you've read kind of over the years that has sort of helped you and your trajectory to learn what you have. Uh, let me take the last one first, which is to say that um, the best book I've read on Public education and especially education policy in the United States is is uh, called the Allure of Order. It's by a guy named John Meta. He, he teaches at Harvard. Um, I, I tend to get grouped in with the education reform movement, quote unquote. Uh, he is not. He's sort of not a fellow traveler at all. He and I, I think, at, at core, don't agree on a lot of things. But his book is really brilliant at taking a lot of recent policy reforms and the history of, of education policy reforms, taking them seriously, recognizing that they're not malicious, like taking the intentions of the people involved seriously, and also showing ways that they're deeply inadequate to the problems we have in American education. So I've always admired that book. I think it's it's one of the best first early books to read in education policy. Um, but on language learning issues, the, the document to go to is pretty straightforward. The, the, the National Academies of Science, uh, Engineering, and Medicine uh, just put out this big, huge consensus study on language learners, both younger DLLs and older ELLs in the United States. Uh, it was uh, from a, a committee of, of experts actually chaired by my colleague and a, a friend of mine, Ruby Takanishi. It's called Promoting the Edu- Educational Success of Children and Youth uh, Learning English, Promising Futures. So it's it's an outstanding document, and when I say it's really large and really huge, it, it is. It's a long it's a long book, but it's also super accessible. They they go out of their way to make it something that folks can really get into, whether or not they have a research background, and they do a nice job of sorting out the the different sections and really signposting. So you don't have to go sit down and read it cover to cover. You can sort of work on which sections you find interesting. Great, and I think that'll be very much appreciated by busy uh, educators, teachers, and administrators, and even. Uh, perhaps parents. So how can people find uh, more about what you're doing, the articles you've read, your work at New America? Right. So uh, uh, newamerica.org slash education policy. um, And there's a hyphen between education and policy slash ed central is our blog. Um, You just kick around the newamerica.org website and you'll find us uh, without too much trouble, I hope. Uh, and also, you know, if you want to come and give me a sort of, uh, I don't know, ruin an hour or two of my day, I'm on Twitter at, at Connor P. Williams. It's C-O-N-O-R-P Williams, like the tennis players. Uh, other than that, I don't know. Just you know, stay tuned. Um, trying to do some more work on this for the Atlantic and a couple of other places as well. Great. Well, it's been really a pleasure having you, Connor. I think you've given us a nice overview of sort of what's happening in the world of dual uh, dual language Hopefully, people have walked away with um, a better understanding of what it is and what it isn't and some of the challenges and possible solutions moving forward. So really appreciate your time. Keep in touch, and I'm looking forward to collaborate more in the future. You bet. Thanks for having me. It's been really a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community. 
where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.